0: Well, this morning, I could tell you for sure that I've been waiting to preach on this passage for a very, very long time. 1 uh, Corinthians is a book in which there are many rebukes and many admonitions yet it contains this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 regarding love that serves as a, a wonderful, wonderful illustration of God's love to us. And it really is a, a passage which sits on its own right, but it is sandwiched between two chapters, chapter 12 and chapter 14 regarding service. Nevertheless, we know that we could learn much about love even through this passage if this passage was presented to us by itself. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we're going to be in verse 1 through 3 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clang cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Let's bow in the word of prayer. Our Father, we are excited to go through this passage on love, and we know, Lord, that there are. There is much to learn from this passage and much information for us to understand. And at the same time, it's not about understanding information, but it's about us choosing to love and it's a practice of spiritual discipline. We pray that you will guide us and lead us, Lord, not just to hear a wonderful message if it is one, but rather to apply it, to learn how to live it out in our own lives so that you may be glorified and certainly us being benefited as a result of our living in such a way. We thank you, Lord, and we pray that you bless this time as we are engaging your word. Holy Spirit, lead us to worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. People bind together or group together for various reasons. Certain people can come together because of common interest. We have people who come together because they love a game of basketball. They don't need to know everyone. They don't need to be friends with everyone. But they just come together because they want to play a game of basketball together. That would be a reason for people to come together. People can come together because they want to read a book together. There could be book clubs or uh, there could be knitting clubs and different activities that draw people together, and certainly people can come together for those reasons. People can also come together because they have a common goal. Um, this could be the reason why you will work with certain individual. You go to a company, and it's a large company, and you have to... Uh, fulfill a certain goal or a certain project and you have to complete that project and you have this individual who's working on your team who is not necessarily your friend but this person is useful for your project so you work with this person in order to accomplish this project so people come together for the sake of accomplishing a common goal others can come together because there's certain exchange of benefits and this could be a reason why you'll call your plumber to come to your home it uh, could be a plumber that you know, or could be a plumber which you just found on Yellow Pages. You don't really know this plumber, but you have a plumbing issue. You call this plumber. The plumber comes, you know, as he is, uh, uh, you know, he's willing to come, and he's coming at your bidding, and it's not because he loves you, it's not because he cares for you in any particular way as a person, but because he wants to earn a living. Uh, you want him to come to your home, not because you're hospitable to him, but because you want him to fix your plumbing. And so there are various reasons why people come together. However, there is a particular reason, a reason which is displayed here in First Corinthians chapter 13, which people can come together not on the basis of exchange of benefits, not on the basis of common goals, not even on the basis of because of common interests, but rather because they simply love each other. A love which is not on the basis of what you can get out of it, but on the basis of simply your choice. This is the love displayed here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And perhaps you would have certain individuals you feel this way about and certain individuals that feel this way about you. Um, we all have probably individuals who have nothing to gain from us, but choose to love us and choose to be by our side, choose to keep up with us, choose to be friends with us, choose to uh, text us or call us to see how we were doing. Um, could be individuals such as your mom could be individuals such as your dad, could be a certain individual, your family member, could be your close friend, one or two, that would call you and be with you no matter what. And you have nothing to offer this individual, and this individual still is next to your side. Even though this is a wonderful, cherished relationship, which you and I would have, we also know that this cherished relationship is not perfect. There's no parent who's perfect. There's no brother or sister who is perfect. There is no friend who is perfect. Loving in such a way, they all eventually, probably at some point, leave you. Even parents leave at times when they pass away. The only person who is perfect in such a way is God. Only God can offer perfect love. Perhaps the most famous passage in all of the New Testament regarding love is found in John three sixteen, Which says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There's a love that's displayed by God, a particular love which says that he's willing to give his life for you so that you will not perish but have life with him forever. And the reason why we would have this love is because we had fallen from God in the very beginning. See, in the very beginning, even though God loved us, this perfect love, this love of sacrifice was not yet seen given the fact that we were made perfect in God. We were made to be like him. We were sinless. However, we sinned against God in the very beginning and therefore became really truly unlovely. It is not something that we cannot imagine ourselves. People who are sinners, people who sin are unlovely. You say, how so? Well, if someone cheats on you, if someone lies to you, if someone steals from you, if someone is dishonest with you, that person will be unlovely to you, right? It'll be hard for you to hang out with this person. It'll be hard for you to be friends with this person. It'll be hard for you to be along, alongside with this person, to be together in the same room with this person, talk with this person because you know that this person is not treating you as the way that you should. And it's because of his sin or her sin. But the reality of God's love for us is that he overlooked this reality of us. Even though we're sin against God and God is so holy and just, even though we can compare ourselves to others and say, well, I'm not as bad as that guy over there. Well, God is so holy that even littlest of sin is heinous to him. And so he finds us unlovely and yet he chose to love us. This is seen in Romans chapter 5 verse 8 where he says, so God loved us in this way that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't love us after you became better. God didn't love you because now you suddenly decide to stop lying, stop cheating, stop stealing, stop using drugs, stop doing whatever that you're not supposed to do. God didn't love you after that. God loved you before that happened. He loved you while you are a sinner, while you are sinning against Him, while you are against Him, while you didn't care about Him, while you're running away from Him. He loved you, and He rescued you unto himself, specifically through the person Jesus Christ. See, Jesus displayed God's love for us in this way. He came and lived a perfect life, not for himself, but to give his perfect life to us. We have lived a sinful life, and that sinful life would be judged by God if we kept it to ourselves, but Jesus lived a perfect life to give his perfect righteous life to you as exchange, if you believe. And then he died on the cross to pay for the punishment that is yours for your sin, that is mine for my sin. We all deserve the punishment of God, but through faith in Jesus Christ, we get to have our punishment taken away from us given the fact that it's been laid upon the Lord Jesus. And he rose again from the dead to show us that we will also rise again from the dead and live with him forever. This is the love of God. Not only did he save us from sin and from death, and now we're going to live somewhere far away from him because he doesn't want anything to do with us, we get to live forever with him. We get to be in his presence. He loved us so much that he rescued us from sin, from darkness, from death, so that we could be in his presence forever and ever, so that we could forever be in his love. This is God's love for us. And given the fact that if we believe in Jesus Christ, we have received this love, the call of the church, the call of each one of us is to imitate that love, is to relive that love, is to demonstrate the same love that God has given to us to those who are Around us in this world, as First John chapter four verse nineteen says, we love too. But it's only because He first loved us. We love because He loved us, and certainly this is what First Corinthians chapter thirteen is all about. It's about us loving, the importance of love, and we're going to spend about two or three or maybe four messages on First Corinthians chapter thirteen. and um, And the point is this: there's a lot for us to learn about love. But Paul here in the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is going to teach us regarding love by first approaching the subject from a negative perspective. What does it mean to live life without love? In in fact, life is nothing if we do not have love. There are four actions of life, four common actions of life that you and I take. And no matter how great we do in the things which we do in these actions, If we're not doing it from the heart attitude or the motivation of love, we've done nothing and we've gained nothing. This is seen here in this passage. We're going to show you the first action today. The first action is the action of saying, the action of speaking. In fact, what we say means nothing and is nothing unless we're doing it from the motivation of love. Let's look at this in verse 1. It says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... But have not love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. Now, as we come to this passage, we're looking at Apostle Paul instructing the Corinthian church, and we've gone through this for the past few months. In fact, we started last year, I think in August, uh, studying through the the book of First Corinthians, and it's been a wonderful journey looking through how the church should be a healthy church. And we're right in chapter 12 when looking at how the church should be a church of service, service to one another in humility. And between chapter 12 and chapter 14, which are all about serving God, here in chapter 13, we're going to see a motivational service, which is the motivation of love. Ultimately, what Paul has been speaking to the Corinthian church is this, that you should serve one another out of pure heartedness, out of humility, and out of love, because the Corinthian church had not been doing so. In fact, God's given to the church gifts, manifestation of the Holy Spirit, which is said in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, God says, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The manifestation is the spiritual gifts which God's given to each one of us. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, even last week. God's given to each one of us spiritual gifts, ways of service for the church of God that will benefit the church. Not ourselves, not for just edifying who we feel, who we are, or how we make ourselves feel better but for the benefit of the church. That is why it says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, the spiritual gifts are there for the common good. However, what we saw also for the Corinthian church is that they had not been using the spiritual gifts or the service of God for the common good. They've been using the service which they give to one another for their own benefit because they get to exalt themselves by showing off how much they can do and how much they can say and their knowledge and whatever it is that they, they, they express, they wanted other people to see them. They wanted to be the one that are exalted. This is what we saw in First Corinthians chapter one, verse twelve, where each one of them say, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. They wanted to exalt themselves saying, well, you know what, I'm this, and you're not this, and therefore I am better than you. So come to this passage in prior to chapter 13, chapter 12, what we saw is Paul giving them the illustration of a body, a physical body. A physical body which is very, very illustrative of the spiritual body of Christ, the spiritual body, namely the church. The physical body, he says, there are many members. We saw this in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. The body of Christ has members, and we are all individually members of a body. And so if you consider a physical body, a physical body has mouth, hands, feet, innards, and you have your organs, you have your stomach, you have your lungs, your heart. And certainly not all parts of the body are visible. You can see the hands, you can see the eyes, you can see the mouth. But the most important part of your body actually are hidden, they're inside of you. People don't see them, people actually take uh, Take them for granted You might even take them for granted You don't consider how much uh, How important it is for your heart to beat It just beats You don't consider how important for your lungs to breathe They just breathe. And your stomach just processes the food And you don't have to tell it to do so It just does it The body of Christ, Paul says, is the same A lot of times we want to be the mouth We want to be the eyes We want to be the hands We want to be seen But the most important parts of the body Actually are the parts which are unseen the Corinthian church had not realized this. They want to be the mouth, they want to be hands, they want to be the ones who are seen. They want to display what they say. They want to say, "I want to say the grand things. I want to people to notice me." And Paul says, "You know what? Let me show you what is most important. Most important is that you serve in humility, and also what is most important is that you serve in love. Love for one another, love so that you will give yourself for the benefit of others. That is why he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 31, "I will show you still and more." excellent way what is the most excellent way or more excellent way is the way of love and that's why he started out here in verse 1 if I speak in tongues of men of angels but I have not love I'm a noisy gong or a clang cymbal so what is he talking about? He's making this comparison of speaking in tongues, which is a wonderful gift, and grand gift, a miraculous gift, a, a, a truly a, a, a wonderful and a spectacular gift, which is given by God to mankind to demonstrate His salvation to mankind. And Paul says, if I were to do this tremendous thing, which is considered to be huge in the history of God in this world and in His working, and yet, if I do not have love, I... I've accomplished nothing. I'm a noisy gone and clang symbol, and so to understand this comparison, we have to understand what tongues are and how magnificent and how spectacular they are, as they were used in Scripture. Tongues were first given to the Bible or to the church, rather, in Acts chapter two, verse two to four. I mean, we see this actually first occurring in the Bible in Acts chapter two, verse two to four. Also, when the disciples were waiting for. The arrival of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, hey, you should wait in Jerusalem until the arrival of the Holy Spirit. So they were waiting in their room, all 120 of them waiting. And all of a sudden, in verse 2 of Acts chapter 2, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house as they were sitting and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as Spirit gave them utterance. And so here we see what tongues are. Tongues is the word glossa, which literally means languages. It's not just gibberish. It's not just ecstatic speech, which nobody understands and nobody could understand, meaning that it's just nothing, just what you're making with your own physical tongue, just noises. It's not this. It's actually tongues people can understand. As we see later on, as the disciples were saying these tongues, other people were understanding them in their saying Acts chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. It says, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belong to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. Now what they did is they say, hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. People can hear them. People can understand them. It's not gibberish. It's a language. It's the actual language of men. So Paul says, if I speak in the language of men, I will be doing a tremendous work of God because here, and also later on, in Acts chapter 10, verse 46, others also spoke in tongues. Now, instead of just being in Jerusalem, now the gospel has moved to Caesarea, to a Gentile home, the home of Cornelius, and when they heard the gospel, they also were speaking in tongues and extolling God. And later on in Acts chapter 19, you'll read about this later in, uh, in the second message when, Paul, when, when Dakota actually, and Apostle Paul actually is in this message, but when Dakota preaches on this, Apostle Paul arrived in Ephesus, and when he arrived in Ephesus, he preached the gospel to the 12 Ephesians, and they also spoke in tongues after he spoke to them and they believed. He says this, when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So these are the only three clearly declared evidences or incidences where tongues were spoken in the book of Acts. Only three times, clearly declared. And they were in strategic places demonstrating that first in Jerusalem, gospel was going to reach out. So the people were coming to Jerusalem, whether it be Jewish proselytes or whether it be Gentile proselytes, whatever proselytes are coming in as and they're just... Seeking after God, they began to speak in tongues. And tongues were a symbol of God reaching this gospel to the ends of the earth. Other people, other languages, other people, other cities were all given opportunity to believe in the gospel when they arrived in Jerusalem. And then when they go to Caesarea, which is a Gentile territory in Israel, they also spoke in tongues. Namely, the gospel was reaching out even to the other parts of Israel. And following Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus, people were speaking in tongues, demonstrating the fact that the gospel now reaches to the ends of the earth. Three incidences, demonstrating God using tongues to say the gospel is now going to reach to the farthest part of the earth. That's what tongues are for, It's to demonstrate that God is using his words and letting the words be in such a way that it's reaching to the Gentiles who do not necessarily speak the Hebrew language because the gospel used to be, or the foundation of the gospel, the Old Testament used to be belonging to the Jews. But now the Jews are skipped over. They have rejected gospel, and God says, no, I will go to the Gentiles. So tongues were used to demonstrate that. Not only so, tongues were also used to demonstrate God's desire for Jews to be saved by bringing them to jealousy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 21 he says this, and God says Jews are to be jealous as a result of tongues happening in this world. He it says, it says, in the law it is written, by people strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, and even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. What is this talking about? This is a passage quotation from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 28. Israel was under conquest, and different languages are going around them because they're now in a state where other foreigners are around them, and they don't know what they're saying. They're in this place of weakness. God has withhold His blessings from Israel because of their disobedience. And the same application Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, now you're going to hear tongues speaking around you. People who are speaking the words of God in languages you do not understand, demonstrating to the Jewish people that the gospel is not reached outside of them. And they need to be jealous, need to believe in the Messiah. So tongues have twofold purpose. One is to demonstrate God's gospel reaching to the ends of the earth the other ones to cause the juice of jealousy. It's a great work of God. And Paul, coming back to this passage, is saying, if I were to speak in such tongue, tongues of men, I would be demonstrating myself to be the one who is used by God in tremendous ways and tremendous purposes. But not only tongues of men, what if I spoke in the tongues of angels? We also see this in verse 1. What are the tongues of angels? Well, in the Bible, we actually don't really see any tongues of angels, namely the languages of angels. Whenever angels spoke, they spoke in languages people could understand. So when angels spoke to Joshua, the angels spoke to Abraham, angels spoke to various people in the Bible, they were speaking to a language that they can understand, namely Hebrew. However, we also know that angels are not ethnocentric, so if they had a language of their own, certain they could have, that would be no opposition to what Scripture says. They wouldn't be speaking Chinese or English or Hebrew. We would assume that they would speak those languages, so they could have their own language. And Paul says, if I could speak that language, that would be a tremendous asset to the church, would I not? And he would be. He would be someone who's speaking grand things, things that no one's ever said. And Paul says, if I were to do that, but he ends with this, if I have no love, I'm just a noisy gong or clang cymbal. I'm just speaking things, but what I say truly do not matter. Even though I'm speaking grand things, spectacular things, but it serves of no purpose to others who are around me and does not benefit myself so how can this be true well in the bible is that your person we spoke grand things tremendous things spectacular things but he was of no use to god or to himself his name is balaam remember balaam his story balaam was a person who was a prophet of god but he did not follow god did not love god nor did he love god's people see balak the king of the Moabites hired Balaam to come and curse the Israelites. And God already made it really clear, I do not want you to curse the Israelites. This is my people. You are to speak good things about them and not bad things. But Balaam loved money because Balak offered Balaam a lot of money if Balaam would just curse the Israelites. And Balaam says, you know what, I don't know if I can do it, but I want to try to do it. So he set up the altar even on the hill looking over Israelite camp and seeking to curse him, but every time he says something, blessings keep coming out of his mouth because God will only let him say blessings regarding Israel. And one of the blessings actually is, num- is in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, the blessing of the Messiah coming from Israel, in which he says, Balaam says, and it's out of his own will, I mean, not out of, like, against his own will, rather, he says, I see him. That is Messiah, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise up of Israel, It shall crush the forehead of Moab, and break down all the sons of Sheth. Saying, there's a star that will come out of Jacob. There's a scepter that shall come out of Israel. Who is this? It's Christ himself. And Balaam here is making a prophecy regarding Jesus, and this is a tremendous prophecy. We could learn a lot even from the prophecy of Balaam. One day you could do a Bible study on the prophecy of Balaam, but this man did not love God. Did not love God. Everything he said was just outward of him, but he had no inward love in him to motivate him. So when Joshua and the rest of the folks came and conquered the Israelites, I mean, conquered, excuse me, conquered the the Canaanites, especially the Moabites. In Joshua chapter 13, verse 22, Balaam was also what killed. Balaam also, the son of Beor, it says in Joshua chapter 13, verse 22, the one who practiced divination was killed with the sword by the people of Israel among the rest of their slaying. So this man who said great things about God and great things about the prophecy of God and what is going to happen in the future was destroyed at the end because he did not do what he did out of love. Even though he spoke grand things, even though he was influential in what he said, he did not say it from love. And in comparison, we could see another person who perhaps was hesitant to say things, but was loving, and that person was Moses. Remember Moses? Moses. Moses was called by God. He was called by God to go and lead the Israelites. And what did Moses say? I'm a man of slow speech, right? Exodus chapter ten, verse chapter 4, verse 10. I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. I'm not one to share. I'm not the one to influence. If what we say is the most influential part about us, then certainly I'm not the one that you want to be a leader. But God said this. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Lord? Like, your ability to speak is something I can give to you. All that I'm asking of you, Moses, that you love and care about what I want you to do. I want you to love these people. I want you to love me. As long as you do that, I'm able to provide for you what you need to do the work. I can make you speak. I could give you the gift of speaking. Very sense what we found out is God doesn't necessarily care about what we say, but why we say it. And if we say it with the right heart, that is part of love, God certainly could make us speakers of Him. So we see here if we have no love, what we say is nothing. What we say needed to be backed up by love, and if it's not backed up by love, then what we say also is nothing. God wants us to have the motivation of love as we speak, as Moses spoke. But not only so, what we found out, not only is that what we say nothing without love, what we know is nothing without love either. What we know is nothing without love as well. We see this in verse 2. It says, If I have prophetic powers, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and uh, later on in verse 2, Paul says, If I have not known love, if I have no love, that Prophets mean nothing, or I am nothing. See, Paul here talks about prophetic powers, and this is another tremendous gift of God. Prophecy is something we talked about prior, and we saw this a few weeks back, and prophecy is something that we discussed. It's not a whim. It's not an intuition. It's not something that you guess. It's not something you say, oh, I, I guess someone here has a back ache or has a stomach ache and that needs to be healed. That's not prophecy. That's guessing. What prophecy is is, Something that's far more certain. It's speaking the very words of God Himself. God is telling you that these are the words I want you to regurgitate to the people of God. That is why we can see this in Ephesians chapter two verse twenty. The church, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. If prophecy could fall, if prophecy could fail, if prophecy, as modern-day prophets say, uh, it could not come true, as we saw. So many prophets on YouTube said Trump is going to get reelected in 2020. These are all false prophets because all the prophecy failed. Now, I'm not talking about it anymore, but their prophecy is about something else. Prophets cannot have false prophecy because you have false prophecy, you can be killed according to the laws of the Old Testament. You need to be the foundation of other people. That's what prophets are. And so what they're doing is that they're regurgitating the very words of God. That's what prophecy is. In fact, someone comes to you and say, well, let me give you an interpretation of what I think I saw or what I had a vision of. They're not prophesying because they're not sure. They have to give their own interpretation. They have to give their own words. They're not prophesying either. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20-21 says this clearly. Prophecy is a regurgitation, direct regurgitation, sometimes even without interpretation of God's word because you just want to be faithful to proclaim exactly what God has said, no more and no less. He says this, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes, what? From someone's own interpretation. I'm not even interpreting this. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. It's not a guess. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They're simply speaking as the Holy Spirit is carrying them along. They're speaking the very words of God, that's why they could say, Thus saith the Lord. So, Paul says, This if I were the one to have prophetic powers, and there are many prophets in the Bible, and there are actually 40, about 40 authors who wrote the Bible across a span of about 1500 years. And they all gave prophecy because the prophets have written the book of Word, the book of the Word, the Word of God, which is served for us. The foundation of the church and if you read the book the bible it, it does serve for us in the work of the prophets the foundation of the church and paul says this if i were all of them together i'm elijah i'm ezekiel i'm jeremiah I'm, I'm i'm all these prophets added together see all these prophets can only have a glimpse a glimpse of god's promise they have a glimpse of the messiah they're only told through vague veils of who Christ is and what is to come. And Paul says, if I were all of them together, if I all prophetic powers, I'm the single person who God uses to write the entire Bible. That would make me very, very important, would it not? Certainly that would be a great contribution if I were that person. But not only so, also in verse 2, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Now all, now all prophets understood everything they are saying because everything they are saying needed to be later on, revealed. That is why it said in First Peter chapter 1, verse 10 through 11, the prophets themselves, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. I mean, they were predicting these things. They were writing about these things, but they don't really know exactly how these things are to come about because they're still searching as well so what does it really mean what i just said they know it's coming from god's word but they need help understanding it so they they're not offering their own interpretation i mean they could but they're just saying this is what the lord god says the lord Lord god says and and we'll have to find out what the lord god means as we are studying it together and so they're searching and inquiring carefully now paul says what if i know what if i'm not like these prophets what if i understand all mysteries and all knowledge you know they were they had to wait they had to wait for Christ to come. Colossians chapter 1, verse 26-27 says, the mystery for ages and for generations now being revealed to saints. Right after Christ comes, now we get to see christ is what paul says well what if like i was the guy who didn't have to wait for christ to come and i could know that this is exactly what jesus is going to do he's going to be a virgin birth he's going to come you know all this he's going to come to bethlehem he's going to come and he's going to come in this way and that way and we know that he's going to do his 30 uh he's going to live to 30 years old and uh, 30 some years old and he's going to start to uh, do his ministry he's going to die on the cross i know all this prior to it happens was that person not only so you can say, well, now today there are some mysteries that we even don't understand. The Trinity, for example. The Godhead. God. One, per, uh, one, one God. Three persons. I don't know how that works, except it's true. Or the mystery of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Like, God is sovereign. I mean, everything we do is in His control, but at the same time, I have free will. How does that work? Oh, I don't know or even the, the mystery of the book of Revelation, all these things have to come about in the future. I can have a glimpse of what might happen, but I don't know exactly how that's going to happen. Paul says, what if I was the guy? What if I was the guy I could explain to you all this mystery? I could explain you all the mystery of the Trinity. I know exactly how that works. I can explain to you the mystery of, of the responsibility of men and also the sovereignty of God. I could explain to you the mystery of the book of Revelation. I could explain to you all these mysteries. That would make me a pretty important person in the church, it? would it not? And yet he says, if I have no love, I am what? Nothing, nothing. You know, there's something that which is not hard for us to imagine, that knowledge without love is nothing. I remember I was talking to a seminary professor. He was also an administrator at the seminary. He was telling me that, you know, a lot of times you don't have to tell people this, but you could, I don't want to judge people in this, but he was saying to me and just between us, and I'll share with you maybe, we, we could just think about it on our own reasons why. He says, now a lot of times the folks in the seminary who graduate with the highest grades are not the best pastors. They don't have the most enduring ministry. He, I mean, he, he's been an administrator for, for many years, 10, you know, 15 years. He says, I look back, and as we assess the students who come out in the ministry, the folks with the best grades are not the ones with the enduring ministry. It's the folks with the mediocre grades. <laughs> they end up becoming good pastors and end up holding down in the ministry. And says, you know what? I was like, what is it? Why is that the case? The reason why that's the case is because seminary cannot assess a pastor on the most important characteristic that defines ministry. What characteristic is that? Love. You cannot give a grade on love, right? Can you give a grade on love? Can you earn a Ph.D. on love? And yet, it is the characteristic of a pastor that will determine if the pastor stays or goes. That's the most important characteristic. You could actually grade a pastor or grade a seminary student on the basis of how much he knows. And you could do that. You could say, oh, that's an A, that's a B, that's a C, that's a D, depending on how much you express. But you cannot grade a person on the basis of love. And yet it's the most single factor to determine if the pastor is a good pastor or not. Right? That's the only, that's the most important factor. And so why is it that the, the medical students end up becoming good pastors? Always there's no indication there's no you know nobody goes to seminary seeking to get bad grades that's not what we're trying to do okay we don't go to seminary try to get bad grades try to get the best grades we have the only explanation is is because we are already in ministry and we don't have time to study that's the only reason. We're just so, so, so overwhelmed with the ministry activities we don't have time to study. While the ones who are studying a lot, they're just in their room. They're ivory tower theologians. They just study, study, study. They know all things. They know everything. They can put it down on paper, but they don't have, a, they don't have day-to-day interaction with God's people. So that's the explanation. What we see here is this. Even knowledge needed to be accompanied by love. Love. 1 Corinthians chapter two. Hey, verse 1, it says, This knowledge puffs up, but love what? Love builds up. Love builds up. So everything we say, everything we know, need to be accompanied by love. In fact, if what you say and what you know isn't going to be accompanied by love, you're to curtail what you say. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 says the truth. We need to speak the truth, that is, in love. In love. How does that work out? That means that even though you may know a lot. The things of which come out of your mouth is filtered by the filter of love. You're not trying to share with people everything you know, just say it because you know it, but you're saying what you know through the filter of love in such a manner, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, we to say only those things which is good for the building up as fits the occasion so that you may give grace to those who hear. So you're thinking about what you know, and you know that what you know these things, but you're not saying everything that you know You're only saying what is beneficial for those who hear. So even what we know need to be curtailed by love or motivated by love. So we see two activities right now, two actions right now, which is nothing without love. What you say is nothing without love and what you know is nothing without love. We're going to move to the third characteristic or third action, rather. What you do, what you do also is nothing without love. Verse 2, he says... If I have all faith as to move mountains or remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So what is Paul talking about here? If I have faith to remove mountains, the only other time in Scripture where this illustration of moving mountains ever used is by Jesus. So Paul, when he said these words, he must have the lesson of Jesus in mind in Matthew chapter 17. See, in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus used these words. He said in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, Because of your little faith, Truly I say to you, you have faith like a grain of mustard seed. You will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and ye will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. What is Jesus talking about here? Why is he talking about moving mountains? What's the significance of moving mountains? Well, this is a figurative language to describe doing something which God calls you to do that is extremely difficult. So what happened in Matthew chapter 17 is this, and we have studied this. When we're in Matthew, Jesus just came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. He came down the Mount of Transfiguration and showed off his glory to James and John and Peter and came down to a mount, from the mountain. And all the disciples were there and they were actually trying to heal this demoniac boy. We saw this in Matthew chapter 17. And they couldn't cast out the demon. So when Jesus came down, he says, you know what? What an unbelieving generation. And he went and cast out the demon. And disciples came to Jesus later on and asked Jesus, well, it's, uh, Jesus, I, I was wondering, you know, like, how come we couldn't cast it out? Like, we tried, but we couldn't cast it out. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. I read it again because of your little faith. Truly I say to you, you have faith like a grain of mustard seed. You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and you will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So, why do they have little faith? Well, it turned out that they did not truly believe what Jesus told them. What Jesus told them in Matthew chapter 10 verse one is this: He gave them authority over unclean spirits. Give them authority, saying that you have the authority over unclean spirits. you could tell them to leave, and they will leave. What Jesus did not tell them, though, is that it's going to be easy, right? Like ministry in general, like Jesus says, "Hey, if you preach the word and, and if you uh, communicate the gospel, people get saved. But doesn't mean it's easy? So ministry of, in this case, of casting out spirits, the same way, you know, it doesn't mean it's easy that you pray with this person, later on, actually, in the very same passage, um, same instance, in Mark chapter 9, verse 29, Jesus actually said, this kind, this spirit actually cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So there's a consistency to it, or even a, a continual effort in casting out the spirit. I mean, one day we could do a, a study on demonology and how demons do not like clean environments. They don't like spiritually clean environments. They don't like when a person goes to church. They don't like, you know, when a person is cast, was possessed by demons going to church or being read to the Bible or uh, listening to hymns. They don't like clean environments. So these are environments which, you know, if someone who is demonically possessed, they say, can okay, I make the demon leave? You provide a clean environment for this person so the demon will not want to stay. At the same time, you preach the gospel to this person, so that the person actually does believe the gospel. His heart becomes clean. The demon definitely cannot stay because the Holy Spirit now dwells within. But that's not an easy process. It's not an easy process. It's a continual process. You know, sometimes people think, you know, "Oh, just because I have a child of God, they I say go," you know, and the demon just leave. It's not like that. It's not like that. Even for the disciples, it was hard. Now, Jesus was God. He just do it. He's God. He could do it for us. You know, we can only rely on the power which is given to us. So, Jesus says, because you lack faith. If you believed, if you relied upon my strength, which I give to you, you will be able to do this. And disciples, they gave up. They gave up. And Paul says, what if I didn't give up? What have this faith, the faith that removed mountains, the faith that Jesus says, hey, if you have this faith, you could make anything happen in ministry, and I would just do great things through you. I will see you through I stick with it. But I have no love. I am nothing. The reason why Paul makes this gesture is because you could do great things for God and not do it from the heart attitude of love. You know, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 to 20 says, We're to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them whatever Jesus commanded us, knowing that Jesus is gonna be with us. So all of us here in the church, we could say, you know what, I'm gonna serve God knowing that God's going to do tremendous things through me, and yet you're not doing it from love. You say, yeah, I hold on to the promises of God, but I'm doing it from the motivation of self-exaltation. I'm doing it from the uh, the motivation of making myself look good, but not necessarily out of love for other people. There's a person who did this in the Bible. You know who he is? Judas. You know, Judas is such a person. He didn't do it from love. He did it from a motivation of exalting himself. I mean, he made a great sacrifice in such a way that he was willing to give us three years of his life, right? He came from the town of Kiriath, which is the southern part of Judea, and then he went up to Nazareth to be with Jesus in Galilee, and that was the per- uh, Nazareth was a place where no prophets came out of, right? Even Nathanael said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, he had enough faith in the fact that a carpenter is going to be a king of Israel. He did give us three years of his life to follow this man, except... He didn't do it from love. He did it because he wanted to exalt himself. He did it because he knows that when Jesus becomes king, he will be able to be there with Jesus and take up the power as Jesus now is powerful. He wanted authority for himself. He didn't do it because he loved Jesus. He did it for his own exaltation. And so when it was found out that Jesus himself was going to be on the pathway of the cross, and Judas understood this, he didn't want to stay with Jesus anymore because Jesus actually wasn't going to be king in his lifetime. He's going to be the eternal king. In fact, if Judas believed in Jesus, he might have to be persecuted. So Judas said, I don't want any of this anymore. I don't love this guy. I'm here for my own benefit. I have enough faith to follow him for three years, but it's just a waste of time now for me. On the other hand, you have another person who followed Jesus out of love. His name was who? Peter, right? Peter loved, loved Jesus. He failed even denied Jesus three times the night that Jesus was was betrayed. What, What did Peter do? What did Peter say? Actually, after Jesus resurrected from the dead on the shores of Galilee, Jesus asked Peter this question in John chapter 21, verse 15. Simon, son of John, do you what? Love. Love, me more than these. And what did Peter say? Three times Peter said, yes, Lord, you know i love you as a result of i love jesus said in verse 15 verse 16 verse 17 feed my lambs tend my sheep feed my sheep you will do great things for me you will do great things for god's people as a result of your love you may have great faith but your faith need to be motivated by love without love your faith and what you do is nothing So we see here the three actions so far, which is nothing without love. We covered what you do is nothing without love. What you say is nothing without love. What you know also is nothing without love. And finally, what you sacrifice. What you sacrifice is nothing without love. We see this in verse 3. It says, if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So what is Paul teaching here? What incidents Could Paul be referring to when he says, I give away all I have. The only person who was asked by God to give away everything he has is who? The rich young ruler. The rich young ruler was asked by Jesus to give away everything, right? We read about this in Matthew chapter 19. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what can I do to inherit eternal life? He's thinking that he's pretty good. We talked about this when we're in Matthew chapter 19. He said, you know, I've done everything. So Jesus, give me a challenge. I'll do it. I'll fulfill it. And Jesus says, you know, fulfill the Ten Commandments. You know what the Ten Commandments are. Do it and you shall live. The reality is that nobody fulfills the Ten Commandments because according to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, through the law comes a knowledge of sin. The law of God, the Ten Commandments, only show us how sinful we are so that we will come to God to ask God for grace and mercy, for salvation. That is the purpose of the law. The law cannot save. It only serves to point us to Christ point us to the fact that we need a savior this person doesn't get it so it says i've done everything i've done everything whatever 10 commandments are and jesus said you know what let me just show you one thing okay i'm not gonna have to talk to you outside the law i'm gonna give you the 10th commitment thou should not covet how do you deal with that so he said in matthew chapter 19 verse 21 to the rich young ruler you will be perfect if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Here is the command. See, the coveting is not the fact that you can't own anything. Coveting is the fact that you want something above, what, above God, above your love for God. So here you have God himself saying to the rich and ruler, Hey, you want to, I'm asking you specifically this, because I'm God, and you're supposed to love me, beyond all these things which you have, so I'm asking you this thing, go and sell everything you have and come and follow me. Now, God doesn't ask that for every one of us, but if God doesn't ask that for any one of us, we would have to do it because we have to demonstrate that we love God more than we love everything else. And Paul says here, okay, if I didn't love God, but if I could fulfill, if I could fulfill what Jesus says here, If I could just give everything away, and what it says here, if I give all things I have, or give away all I have in verse 3, is is of a connotation, the Greek actually read this, if I give more souls away, like a little bit at a time. Sometimes it's a little bit easier for us to give everything away all at once, right? It's like, I'm going to go to the mission field, I have all this money, I'm going to write a big check, I'm going to give it all away. It's like big sacrifice, and that would be a good sacrifice. And Paul says, that even more than that, I'm going to give little pieces away every single time, right? This, 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 and so. sacrifice continuously until I have nothing. If I were to do what this rich young ruler couldn't do, but I have no love, I'm not doing it because I love God, but I'm doing it because, you know, I can fulfill all the laws which God calls me to fulfill, and I have no love, that means nothing. That means nothing. That sacrifice means nothing, Paul says. And if I were to, verse 3, give my body to be burned. There is no Christian persecution at this point in history. Nero has not risen in power to persecute a Christian in such a way to burn them at the stake. So what Paul is saying here is actually referring to most likely, and I think the only part in Scripture about people being burned would be the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Benegal. and how King Nebuchadnezzar persecuted them and said, if you do not worship the golden statue which I set up, you will be burned in this fiery furnace. Now here's their response in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. What Paul says here is this. If I could live out the life of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego and endure persecution. That would make me a certain important person in the church, would it not? I would have done a great thing. So if I were to give up all my money to feed the poor as this rich young ruler, that would make me impressive, would it not? But Paul says, you know what? If you didn't have love, you are nothing. You gain nothing. See, there's a person in the Bible, actually two people in the Bible that made tremendous sacrifice, but they didn't do it for our love and their efforts amounted to nothing. You know who they are? And Ananias and Sapphira. You know them? They're the two people who actually did a tremendous work for the church. Some, some work which we haven't done before. I mean, they sold a property of theirs and gave some of the proceeds to the church. I mean, how many of us have done that? Sold the property and gave the money to the church. It's a lot, right? But they're not doing all of love because right before them there was a man named Barnabas who did that out of love. He did it because he loved the church and he did it honestly. I mean, he sold what he had and he didn't have to do this. Nobody had to do this, but he sold what he had. He honestly brought it to the church and said, "This is all the proceeds of that particular cell." And people were encouraged by this. People were, were glad because of this. The church was uh, uh, saying to Barnabas, hey, you, you encouraged me. He was called the son of encouragement. And the Nebuchadnezzar also wanted this, but they didn't do it from love. They sold the property. They were imitating this, but they didn't, they didn't want to uh, do the whole thing. They, mean, they didn't do it out of love because they lied about how much they gave. They didn't have to give anything actually. But the fact is that they lied about it. So they sold the property and kept some of it to themselves and gave some to the church. But they said they give all to the church. And Peter said, "You know what? That money is yours. You didn't have to lie about it. Why was yours? Is it not under your disposal? And what's unsold? It's not. Is it not yours to keep?" In Acts chapter five, verse four, he says, "Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. You don't need to impress people with this. You don't. So all your sacrifice means nothing." In fact, God judged Ananias and Sapphira by letting them die right at the moment, judged them to death. All their merits, all their sacrifice was nothing without love. That is why Jesus told us in John chapter 13, verse 1, his own example of love, why everything, every service we do, every sacrifice needed to be out of love. He said this, actually, this is a description of Jesus from John teaches about the heart of Christ regarding love. He says this. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he would love them to the end. His motivation is love. Certainly, there is a desire to do the Father's will that is from Jesus' heart. Certainly, there is a, a desire to accomplish what he's called to accomplish, but his motivation was that of love. He really, really loved the people who he's going to die for. And out of this love, he picked up a basin with some water and wrapped a towel around his waist and began to wash the disciples' feet, demonstrating that he is doing this work of salvation, of cleansing them. He's doing it from love. And from this service, he says to them in John chapter 13, verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, if I've done this, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Not that we could save another person. Not that we can cleanse another person's sins. We can't cleanse anyone's sins. We can't do that, but we can imitate the Lord's heart by doing things in such a way that we want just the benefit of others and not for ourselves. This is the Lord's heart. He's sacrificing out of love. So I ask you a question, are you serving out of love today? There are many services that God's called us to, We see in Romans chapter 12, verse 7 through 8, there's serving, there's teaching, there's exhortation, there's contribution, financially, in generosity, there's one who leads, there's one who leads in zeal, there are ones who do acts of mercy. But do you do these things out of love? Because love ultimately is a spiritual discipline, it's a fruit of the Spirit. According to Galatians chapter 5, verse 20 to 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, love, and encompasses other fruit joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control so it's a spiritual discipline such a discipline that jesus says if you have this kind of love in matthew chapter 5 verse 44 you would love who you will love your enemies you will love those who are unlovable you'll love those who are hurting you it's a discipline and yet we're called to have this love in our motivation of service here in the church. So it's a choice. It's a sacrifice. But yet it is also the most important motivation of our service to one another. So we see here is the importance of love and we're seeing that we need to have love in everything we do. Without love, what we say is nothing. Without love, what we know is nothing. Without love, what we do is nothing. And without love, what we sacrifice also is nothing all of it is nothing without love and perhaps the most dangerous and saddening fact about life is that you could be passionate about what you do and not do it from love this is the conversation that Jesus had with the Pharisees when the Pharisees asked Jesus which one is the most important law of all what's the most important law there's 613 laws for you to choose from in the Old Testament which one is the most important And Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, verse 39. And it's a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 6. With the love of the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Love. Love God. And also, verse 39, love people. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love people. That is the all-encompassing motivation of what God asks for us to do in this world. And if you are part of God's family, and if you are a child of God, you will love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16 says, so we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And we're those who abide in God, so therefore we abide in love. Let's word of prayer. Our Father, we are thankful that we get to investigate just three short passages today regarding love, and yet it's a powerful, powerful description. May we apply it to our lives. May we not just be impressed with what we read and what we heard, but truly apply it because applying it is hard and difficult. It's a sacrifice, and yet it's what you call us to do. May we not arrive at the throne of Jesus and have Jesus say, well, you haven't really done anything for me because we've done a lot of things but not do it out of love. May we not be disappointed. May we know, Lord, that in the day in which we see you, we will have much to show you because the things which we do is out of love for you and for others. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.